Amen. So I was in, I think, third grade-ish. And I was out on my bike one beautiful summer day because that's pretty much what I did in third grade as far as my memory can tell. I went outside and rode my bike. And we lived on a long gravel road deep in the woods of northern Minnesota. But on this particular day, it wasn't all sunshine and happiness because as I'm riding down the road, I'm probably a mile down the road away from my house. There's, there's nothing anywhere but trees. There's a little swamp. I can remember it vividly. And I can remember seeing a little baby bear walk out of the woods and just look at me. Maybe he waved his paw or something like that. And I remember doing the, the, the thinking that I'm pleased to say I was able to do, the thinking of, oh, look, it's a baby bear. Oh, wait a minute. I learned something about baby bears. And they have mamas. And mamas don't want their babies threatened by anybody. And, and, and there was this m- moment where fear gripped me. (laughs) I need to get out of here. And I jumped back on my bike and I biked as fast as any third grade boy has ever biked. The fear drove my legs to ride with great urgency all the way back into my house, drop the bike, run up the stairs, go in the door, slam the door, lock the door. (sighs) Safety. Have you ever ran away from something in fear. You know what I'm talking about? There's, there's the moment when the fear hits you, and, and, and it's, it's an emotional thing, right? Fear is an emotional thing, but it causes a physical response. Your heart rate goes up. You might start sweating. And because of the power of fear, man, we can run away from all sorts of things. We're in our study of the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4 today. And I'd like to um, title this message, Don't Run Away. And and Hebrews chapter 4 is, let's be honest, a bunch of Hebrews is hard to fully comprehend. Like you read through it and there's just all these references to Old Testament scripture and you got to like flip back and figure it out and there's these words and phrases that don't necessarily make sense to to modern readers sometimes and Hebrews chapter 4 is just at the top of its game for being confusing to people reading it. So what we're going to do is I'm going to I'm going to go to two Old Testament texts and I'm going to spend a little bit of time diving into some of the background and my hope is that After I look at two different Old Testament texts, we're going to come and we're going to read almost all of chapter 4. And my hope is once we read it, I've I've opened our eyes at least a little bit more to some of the names and some of the references and some of the images in that passage. So we're going to do a little work together. Um, Just as a reminder, Hebrews chapter 4 is a continuation of where we were last week. Last week was exploring Psalm 95 And it was a warning against unbelief. And chapter 4 really continues that warning against unbelief in an unbroken way. But it's the other side. If chapter 3 said, hey, don't harden your hearts and turn away from God. 
Chapter 4 says, because God wants to give you his rest. The the title at the top of a lot of Bibles, chapter 4, says, a Sabbath rest from God or for God's people. Um, So, a couple background verses. Uh, Then Hebrews chapter 4, we'll go from there. Um, First, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read just four verses, verses 4 through 8. I'm guessing that some of you might have this as your life verse printed on a wall because of just how sweet and beautiful of a short passage of Scripture it is. You'll know what I mean when we read it now. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 4. The Nephilim. Ooh. I know you know this, but I misspelled Nephilim right there. There's no E on the end. Sorry. I think I got it right in the other slides. Okay. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled so that the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that just like a heartwarming verse? You want to you embroider it on a little you know, cloth and put it up in your kitchen? I would like to answer one of the deepest burning questions I know to be in your heart. Who the heck are the Nephilim? And after that, I'll answer the question, and why do we care? But we're going to get there. Now, as we've said, the first audience reading the letter to the Hebrews was a Jewish Christian congregation. And therefore, the first five books of the Bible were deeply embedded in their understanding of who God was and how God is calling his people to live in the earth. And this story would have been familiar to them. And the answer to the question of who the Nephilim are requires we pay attention to where these few, four few verses show up in the story. So let me recall for you the book of Genesis. Chapter 1, we get the story of God's creation. Chapter 2, we get another version of the story of God's creation, but both of them end with this pinnacle moment of God's stamping his image on the humans he created, male and female, in God's image. And then on the seventh day, God rested. But then chapter 3 comes, and this perfect good creation God made, sin enters in and breaks the perfection So that in chapter 4, we get an explicit example of the effect of sin in this world. Not only did sin cause mortality to come to the human race, but we meet Cain and Abel, the first brothers who ever fought with one another, and apparently not the last. And Cain murders Abel. So now sin has entered the world, but not only has sin entered the world, but it's had a deadly impact. 
And then chapter 5 gives us a genealogy, which can be hard to get interested in, but at the end of the genealogy, we, we, we read about the first three natural deaths to ever come into humankind. Adam dies, Enoch dies, and Adam and Eve's son, Seth, dies. So in a pretty short chunk of time, we went from God's good, perfect creation and God making humans and blessing them with his image and saying, oh, you got all the fruit and vegetables you want. It's awesome. We went from that to murder to death entering humanity. And the very next verse is about the Nephilim. And people have made all sorts of guesses about who the Nephilim are. And the real answer is we can't know for sure. But some guesses are that maybe there's some sort of angel-human hybrid type people because it says the sons of God and the daughters of man got married. So maybe it's some weird like interceleal being. Ah! Other people say maybe they were giants. And if you do some fun Google searching, you can get pictures of what those giants might have been sized like in comparison to small little humans on the left. And then they may have been giants, I don't know, but the critical part in my mind is this trajectory we're seeing where from good, sin enters, from the entrance of sin, we get the first murder, after the first murder, we find out there's mortality, and this impact of sin is growing in the world. The the power of sin and brokenness is getting greater in the world so that the Nephilim become an image of sin at its worst. And the Nephilim were violent, powerful warriors who epitomized sinful living. They were men of renown because of how horrendously violent they were. They saw the beauty of the daughters of man, and the implication is that they didn't just go get married and settle down and have nice lives, but they probably took those women as captives for themselves, thus abusing the image of God instead of honoring it. So background number one, I know you woke up this morning and you thought, what I really hope Carl does is tells me about the Nephilim this morning. You're welcome. The Nephilim are horrible, awful people who are really great warriors, maybe gigantically great warriors, and they're the epitome of evil scary. So if the theme is don't run away, the Nephilim are somebody you would be tempted to run away from, especially if you ran into them in a dark alley or in a light alley, actually. Okay, background number one. Background number two, uh, flip forward. You're going to want to go to the right a number of pages to Numbers chapters 12 through 14. I'm not going to read that all, but you can, you can follow along. Uh, I want to tell you now a second part of a foundational story that any ancient Jewish person would have been deeply familiar with. Uh, Numbers 12 through 14 continues the story about God's bringing the Israelites out of slavery in, in, uh, in, in Egypt and to his promised land. So just as a refresher, Israelites are in slavery. They cry out and God hears the cry and comes and frees them through Moses with his mighty hand. After that, they run into a couple more difficult circumstances and God proves himself faithful again and again and again. Then he brings Israel to Mount Sinai where he makes a covenant with them. He's like, hey, I'm with you guys. I'm your God. You're my people. We're in this together. Let's 
stick together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's where that song came from. <laughs> took a little while. Took a little while. Uh, <laughs> at Sinai, with the covenant, God says, now you were enslaved in horrible circumstances, but I'm going to bring you to a place where instead of being oppressed and overworked, you can finally have peace and rest. I'm bringing you to the promised land, namely the land I promised to bring you to. That's why it's called the promised land. Sure enough, the Israelites get there. But if you haven't picked up on the theme, right when they get there, they yet again start losing faith in God. The first thing they do in Numbers chapter 12 is they start doubting whether or not Moses really is God's chosen prophet, and whether or not they can really trust Moses. And so God makes it abundantly clear in no uncertain terms that Moses is the one that God is speaking to, and Moses is the one who's going to lead them into the promised land. All right, people, stop questioning Moses. You've done it enough. I've stuck with him all this time. So then Moses selects 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says to them, all right, God's been faithful. We made it to the edge of the promised land. They're literally like looking, you know, I don't know, they got their binoculars out or whatever they have, and they're looking into the promised land, and they're like, all right, let's go check this place out. So Moses selects 12 men, and he sends them in. And they go for 40 days on a reconnaissance mission. They're taking notes, you know, they're, they're figuring out what, what kind of armies they have in there, what kind of cities they have in there, what kind of produce they have in there. They're, they're learning everything they can about Canaan. And they all come back, these 12 spies, they all come back, and it's time for them to give a report. Ten of the spies give a report that says, whoa, the Canaanites are really big and scary. They are like a baby bear on a dirt road in northern Minnesota with the mama bear coming, run away. And not only do they give this report, but they spread the fear around the entire Israelite camp so that pretty soon the Israelites are saying, yet again, have you not learned, people of Israel? They're saying, you know what we should do? We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So Moses says, you know what? Um, actually, no. Uh, so, so the ten give it. They spread the fear. They say, we should get a different leader. We should abandon Moses, get a different leader, and go back to Egypt. But there are two of the guys, Joshua and Caleb, who give a different Report And in Numbers 13, we hear one phrase that Caleb said in a pleasantly sort of understated way. Caleb says, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can most certainly do it. Confident. Simple. I like it. Um, well, the people have heard two reports. Scary, let's run away. Not scary, we got God with us, we should go do it. And the people decide, no. They're too scared, and they're going to run away and not go where God is leading them. So that's when God speaks to Moses and says, hey, um, here's the thing. The spies went in for 40 days. The people of Israel 
bought into the fear and didn't trust me. Therefore, this whole generation is going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness and they will not be able to enter the promised land, except for the spies who were faithful. And if you know the rest of the story, and I had a lovely conversation in between services about the rest of the story, Joshua becomes the leader who does eventually bring Israel and the next generation into the promised land. So Israel is, 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 way, is, is, is trying to figure out which of these two reports, the, the scary report or the, or the hopeful report, and we get this other little line in there that tells us just how scared they were. The land we explored, this is, the, this is the doubter spies, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. So Israel is on the edge of the land God promised to them. But while they're looking at receiving what God promised to them, they're also looking at one of the scariest things they could imagine. Warriors who are so powerful and legendary that they think there's no way our God could be strong enough. Well, after Moses said, all right, you didn't have faith. Here's the consequences. You're going to wander for 40 years. Then apparently the Israelites were like, oh, actually, hold on a second. Um, um, No, we're going to trust God after all. So uh, uh, let's go go attack them. We can do this. Let's go attack them. And Moses is like, hmm. Probably should have thought that the first time. God already said, you know, what's going to happen, so I I wouldn't do this. And they're like, ah, we're not going to listen to you, Moses. That would be a terrible idea. So they go and they attack Canaan anyway. And at the end of verse 14, it says they end up getting a beat down, which is in there. You have to pull one word out and push a couple together. But it says it in there. They got a beat down. You can find it in 1445. So we've got two background texts. An image of the Nephilim, one of the the scariest people you could imagine, scariest, most dangerous people you could imagine. We've got a reminder of this core story where God has been faithful again and again and again and again and again. And he brings Israel to the promised land, but when they see something they're scared of, they lose their faith again. And instead of following where God is leading, they get on their bikes and they run home and they lock the door behind them. Now we get to Hebrews chapter 4. And what Hebrews chapter 4 is going to try to do is say the rest that God started with his creation, the gift of rest that God promised to Israel and wanted to bring them into the promised land, is a gift that God now wants to give to all people who place their faith in Christ. And you'll see references to this background story in Hebrews chapter 4. So flip now to to chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. I encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles or you can see the words on the screen. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. 
Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let me pray again quick. God, our prayer, as we've said many times, both in the past weeks and this morning, is that we would be people who hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Help us to understand it, and not just understand it, but know how to live it. Amen. It's just, man, there's so much to talk about in here. But what we're going to try to unpack is what does it mean that God wants to give us his rest in the same way he wanted to give Israel the rest of the promised land. So I've got four things to mention. This rest God talks about is available to everyone. It's an invitation to join the activity of God himself. It requires giving an account of our lives. And it's an invitation to confidence. So again, here's the, here's the parallel that they're drawing out. The Israelites were taken out of physical slavery and brought into a physical land that was flowing with milk and honey and apparently pomegranates, grapes, and figs as well, the book of Numbers tells us, to which my children would have cheered, yay, fig bars, we love the fig bars. But now the rest God gives his people through faith is no longer rest of a specific geographical place. 
It's no longer a gift given to a specific uh, demographic of people, a specific nation, but rather God has said the good news of salvation in Christ is available for all people. From every tribe, every tongue, every nation, it is not an invitation into a specific land, but rather it is an invitation into the life found in Christ. So whereas in the Old Testament story, God was bringing a certain people to a certain land so that through them he could bless all people, now in Christ God has said, through faith I have made my blessing, my rest, my salvation, available to anyone and everyone from any nation, from any tribe that speaks any language, anywhere throughout the world. So we see again a trajectory opposite of what we saw in the beginning of Genesis. If Genesis was going from good to worse and worse and worse and worse, the story of God's goodness is going from blessing to greater blessing to greater blessing to more people. In the same way that evil had been expanding the power of its influence, God is expanding the reach of his love to counteract the power of evil in the world. Second, I think it's critical to note that the author of Hebrews links this idea that God wants to give us the gift of rest to the creation account of God himself resting on the seventh day. See, one of the dangers with any organized religion, and and we see this in Christianity, we have gone from good news about who God is, and there's this danger to always transform it into rigid legalistic rules about how you must behave. And yes, God has ideas for how he wants us to live, but legalistic constraint is never the point. Rather, God is inviting us to say, hey, look at who I am, the God who made you, I'm inviting you to join me in the way I live. God worked for six days and rested on the last one so that he could give us gifts for meaningful work that he gives us to do and invite us to receive the gift of rest from that work. Which is both remembering that we should stop and rest. We should sleep well at night. We should take a day off every week. We should enjoy relationships. But it's also an image of the ultimate rest, which is the life he gives in salvation. And this whole two chapters of Hebrews is really talking about that. It's saying, don't harden your hearts and turn away from God in unbelief. Turn towards God in faith so that you can receive the truest ever kind of rest, life found in Christ. Well, how do we find that? How do we find that true rest? Unfortunately, Verses 13 and 14, or verses 12 and 13, give us the answer, and it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a heavy answer. Um, Hebrews 4, uh, 12 and 13, I'm most familiar with when I, uh, a couple times a year, I get together and I interview um, candidates who are seeking to become ordained in the covenant church, in our denomination. And one of the questions, one of the essays that they always have to write, and one of the interviews, questions that we always do is, Tell us about your theology of Scripture. What, what is the Word of God? What is this book that we're talking about? And without fail, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, gets quoted somewhere. And it gets quoted because it, it points out the power of God's Word. But as I've been studying it these past couple weeks, it hit me in a different way, and particularly the last line hit me in a different way. As I'm thinking about this theme of Warning against unbelief, 
Don't harden your hearts. Don't be like the Israelites, but instead turn towards God in faith. How do we do that? Here's how we do it. I'm going to read it again. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The way to avoid hard hearts and avoid running away from God, the way into placing our faith in God, is a way through opening every attitude of our heart and every thought of our mind and having it laid bare before the God who sees it all anyway. I mean, what, what would that be like? What would it be like if you got a document and you just put line after line every word you'd ever spoken, every deed you'd ever done, every thought you've ever thought, and every desire or attitude you've ever had on your heart? Now, you know, I might look at that document and I might go, oh, that was a good one. I'd like to highlight this one right here to draw your attention to. Um, Oh, this was a good moment. Remember when I was going to hit my brother, but I stopped myself because I'm such a just kind heart. Like, can I highlight and circle that one? I would be tempted to draw God's attention to some of the better moments. But that's not what the author is saying. (laughs) He's saying that we're going to have to give an account for every moment. And it's not just what we do. If the story of Genesis started with the influence of sin impacting our actions, Cain murdered Abel, the Nephilim lived violent lives. The story is that God extends his desire to transform us, not just to actions, but to our hearts as well. Here's how Jesus said it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. The way of faith is a way of inviting God's judgment on our words and our deeds, on our thoughts and on our attitudes. And let me be honest, if we're talking about things that are scary, that would make me want to run away, this is scary. This is not what I want to do. This is, the the author of Hebrews is bringing us to a point of feeling the weight of sin, not just in the world out there, but also in my own heart and mind. And it's a heavy weight, and it's not a pleasant weight, and it's a weight that makes me want to run away scared. But the chapter doesn't end there. And even though there's another heading in probably in a lot of your Bibles that makes it look like we move on to a next thought, talking about Jesus the high priest, in fact, the last two verses of chapter 4 continue an unbroken theme that started at the beginning of chapter 3 and goes all the way to what is the crescendo at the end of chapter 4. If, if verses 12 and 13 make us feel the weight and burden of our sin, 
that is only so that we can taste all the more the sweetness of God's saving grace in Christ. Here's the end of the thought. Therefore, meaning we just finished thinking about the disobedience of Israel and the disobedience of our own heart, and we just considered giving an account for every single thought, word, and deed we've ever done. That's what, whew. And therefore, having just done that, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The moment we feel the full weight of sin's impact on our lives and in the world around us is exactly the moment we learn the true power of the good news of salvation and life in Christ. The weight of our sin should not cause us to fearfully run away, but it should give us confidence in God's gift of salvation. And for actually the next three weeks, we're going to be talking more about just how amazing this idea is that Jesus is our high priest advocating on our behalf. Here's how I would summarize what the author is trying to say throughout chapter 4. We should approach the throne of God not with fear and trembling because of what we have done, but with confidence because of what Christ has done. Confidence that the rest he promised to his people long ago, the rest he promised to us in Christ today, the rest that is always available is a rest whose power of life can overcome any fearful circumstance we ever face. Which means we need to ask ourselves, what's your move going to be? What, what, what are we to do with this? And I want to suggest something that's actually going to lead us into uh, another time of prayer together. Um, I think if we're going to be people who don't run away scared when we come face to face with something big and scary in our lives, but rather go towards God in faith, there's two critical practices, ancient Christian tra practices. First, confession. The way to faith in God is through our confession of the very real brokenness of sin in our lives. And second, silence. We've been talking again and again about how powerful it is to hear the voice of God, but the world we live in is so noisy that sometimes even after we've confessed our sins, our minds are so loud and busy, we never stop to truly hear the good news that like the author of Hebrews said, God's grace will help us. I remember being afraid once, um, my parents had gotten a divorce and my dad had gotten remarried and I took all the pain from that whole season and, and I was looking for a place to put my pain and the easiest place was on my new stepmom because I didn't want to be mad at my mom or mad at my dad so I, I could just be mad at Sherry instead. That was easier. And God convicted me. He said, Carl, your anger and even hatred is not an appropriate response. 
And I remember in prayer, God saying, I, Carl, I want you to talk to Sherry about this. And I had a very clear first response. It was very similar to what I did when I saw the baby bear in the woods in northern Minnesota. I ran away. I was like, la, 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 God. I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do. But when I finally did confess and have that conversation, which was the last conversation I ever wanted to have, but when I trusted God's invitation to go through confession, confession, I cannot tell you how healing it was for me personally, how much more open suddenly this relationship that still to this day is a, is a central relationship in my life, my relationship with my stepmom, Sherry. I would have liked to have run away, and by running away, I would have not been able to receive the gift of rest that God wanted to give me. I'm going to have the worship team come back up, and I'd like to invite you, would you pray with me? A prayer of confession and a time of silence that we might hear the voice of God speaking his life into ours. God, your word says that we must give an account. Your word says that you already see as though it's been uncovered and laid bare, not only every word and deed we've done, but you see every thought and attitude in our hearts and minds. So we'd be foolish not to confess I'd invite all of us now, in, in our hearts and in our minds, would you lay bare before God any confession you hear him prompting you to make, any hurtful word or deed, any way you've ran away from God, caused harm to yourself or others. Confess those in your heart to God right now. Indeed, God, we confess that we have sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in the desires and attitudes of our hearts. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. And we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And yet, God, we hold firm to the promise made by, written by the Apostle John when he said, If we confess our sins, you, God, are faithful and just, and you will. You have, you do forgive us all our sins and you will purify us. You will scrub us clean from all unrighteousness. 
God, as we take a moment of silence, may we hear the sweet sound of your voice telling us that your mercy and grace is sufficient to help us face whatever it is scaring us in our lives. Now, God, as we sing the words of the prayer you taught us to pray, may we sing with the joy of knowing that because of what you, our Christ, have done for us, we can receive the fullness of life that you give. May that be so, not just this day, but every day before us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.